Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about two of the minor prophets, Hosea and Joel. Uh, As you all know, minor prophets are not minor because they are minor in importance or any less uh, worthy or important than the major prophets. They are just shorter in length. And today we're going to be talking about Hosea and Joel. And Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom uh, uh, of Israel, and Joel was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And I realize that in your Bible uh, that Hosea uh, comes first and then Joel comes second, but I want to do that in a little bit uh, different order this morning. I want to talk about Joel first uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't uh, want to get to, through uh, the book of Hosea and then rush through the book of Joel at the very end and just give it short shrift. I, I think the book of Joel uh, has a lot of very important things to say to us. I realize it's only three chapters, but the, there's a lot in there, and I don't want to miss it. So I want to make sure we give it adequate time. And then secondly, uh, the main event really is Hosea uh, this morning. So we really want to spend time on Hosea and especially chapter three. So um, a lot of what we're going to talk about builds up to the main event in Hosea and Hosea chapter three. And I think if we get there and cover that and then go back to the book of Joel, it will just sound anticlimactic. So I don't want to do that. We'll just uh, cover Joel first and then we'll tackle Hosea and take it from there. So with uh, Joel, I have a, a, a couple different sources that I'm looking at, uh, in pr- particular uh, the Bible Project, but also resources uh, from different commentators that I was that I uh, refer to and often get from a website called PreceptAustin.org. But today, with the Book of Joel, what I want to do is cover a couple things. I first want to talk about what makes Joel unique, and then secondly, we'll talk about the Day of the Lord, a major theme in the Book of Joel, and then. Uh, God's response to repentance, and then Joel's treatment of a future day of the Lord. And then we'll look at some of the questions that the book of Joel raises, and I think actually they are rabbit holes, rabbit holes, uh, distractions, in other words, that can distract us from what I think the key takeaways of the book of Joel are uh, that that God has for us today. Uh, So let's take a look at that. First of all, what makes Joel unique? The book of Joel, I'm sorry, the word Joel, the name Joel, means Jehovah is God. That much we know. Beyond that, uh, we really don't know that much about who Joel was. The book starts out by saying he was the son of Pethuel, which is good to know, but we really don't know who Pethuel was. So that doesn't help a whole lot. And it's, uh, it's not clear when it was written. Most of the prophets give some kind of indication of the time frame in which they were written by referencing kings or something else in history. And uh, the book of Joel doesn't, it mentions Jerusalem and the temple, but it doesn't mention any kings anywhere. So, for example, and by contrast, the book of Joel starts this way, Joel chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And then he starts. And you contrast that uh, with Hosea. 1 verse 1, which starts this way. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, 
in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So those are a lot of kings that are listed, lots of clues. And when a prophet starts the book like that, you can kind of reference where they uh, are in time and get get an understanding of the time frame in which the book was written. And Joel isn't like that. Joel just starts the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So scholars disagree. Some will say he was very early. Some say he was a contemporary of Elisha. Um, Some say very late. And uh, one of the interesting things that argues for it being a little late is that um, he assumes that uh, you have a complete familiarity with other Old Testament writings. And in fact, he quotes extensively from other Old Testament writings, including Exodus, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Nahum, Isaiah, Amos, and Malachi. And if he's quoting from Malachi, um, that would place him more like you know, like four or 500 BC. So some of the scholars will say he was written as early as 850 BC, and uh, others say, no, 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 if he's quoting from these other books, uh, he it's written much later. Now, there's a a point of interest here that's interesting. When he quotes from other books, he doesn't say, thus saith the book of Malachi. He just uses the same phrase. So you could say, well, perhaps the Holy Spirit just inspired him to say that phrase in the same way the Holy Spirit inspired Malachi to say that phrase. So they're not necessarily, he's not necessarily quoting from the book of Malachi. But, um, or the other alternative explanation is all these other books, he's, that Joel is not quoting these other books. These other books are quoting Joel. Who knows? Uh, but it, one other fact about Joel that is interesting that plays into this is that Joel does not go out and list all of Israel's sins. Joel assumes you know. Joel, uh, by contrast with Jeremiah, for example, if you look at the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah will, uh, the people come to Jeremiah and say, what, what have we done? What have we done that's so bad? What are our sins? And Jeremiah says, I'll tell you what your sins are. He will blast them. He'll, he'll list the sins. You did this and you did this and you did this. And he'll tell them what the sins are. And Joel doesn't do that. Joel kind of assumes, well, you, you know, you're sinners, you know, you deserve the punishment you're getting. So that kind of argues for that he is saying that he's quoting the other ones, that he says, you all know the scriptures like I do. You, you don't need me to tell you what kind of sin you're in and how you deserve God's wrath. Uh, and if that's the case, then he's quoting these others, and then he's, he's a, more of a later uh, prophet that's written. So that kind of helps you place where Joel is in place and time. Now, what does Joel talk about? The major theme in the book of Joel is the day of the Lord. And it starts right off, and it's only three chapters long, but chapter one starts right off by talking about a past day of the Lord, and that was a swarm of locusts that had been sent against Israel. And the, um, the commentators look at this and say, it doesn't sound like he's talking about a hypothetical swarm of locusts. It's not like he's saying, well, think about what it would be like if a swarm of locusts were to come over our land. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? He's not speculating. It's all the way he writes and refers to it is, is is if he's referring to an actual event, that an actual swarm of locusts had come through the nation, and um, from what we know about locusts, and also from the way he describes it, it just devastated everything, devastated hundreds of square miles. Is what locusts are capable of doing. So it would have just devastated everything, and the way he describes it is. There's complete and utter devastation of the land. He said what one wave of locusts didn't eat, the next wave of locusts ate. 
And with that wave didn't eat, the next wave ate, and so on and so forth. And everything was completely devastated. And what he says is that um, swarm of locusts was not just uh, some ecological disaster. It wasn't just a coincidence. That actually was God's judgment on us for our sin. And that would have been, uh, in some ways, for the listeners and the readers, uh, a recollection uh, or would have stimulated a recollection of the plagues of Egypt and uh, how God delivered uh, the Israelites from Egypt. And at that time, God sent plagues, but he sent them on Egypt's enemies. And this time it's different. Joel says, no, the, pl- the plague, uh, he doesn't use the word plague, but the locust that came, like a plague, that might remind you of another plague. Uh, but this, th- this, this swarm of locusts that came down, this plague, this was God's judgment, not on our enemies, but on us. And so what he does is he says the proper response to that is repentance. And in chapter 1, verse 13, for example, he says, Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. He's saying the proper response to this judgment from God, the locust that came in, is repentance. And it appears that he also includes himself in that. He doesn't say, all of you need to repent. I need, re- I need to repent too. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. So what he's saying is that uh, the, the proper response to this plague, uh, this judgment of the Lord that came in the form of a, a plague uh, of locusts, is repentance for you and for me. So that's, the, that's chapter 1, and that's talking about a past day of the Lord. But then he starts talking in chapter 2 about a future day of the Lord. And what he does is he uses, what he says is that the, the locusts that came were merely a metaphor for another wave of locusts, but these are not going to be insects. This is going to be an invading army. And that army is going to come like locusts and sweep across the land. And it's going to be horrible, horrible devastation. Uh, for example, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Before them, this is the invading army, the invading soldiers. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. And then, in, in, in a surprising twist, he refers to this invading army as God's army. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. So he's saying the locusts, you see, that we just went through, that was God's judgment on us. But they are merely a metaphor for the real, the future day of the Lord, the real locusts that are coming. That's going to be an army, an invading army, and it's going to be God's invading army. And the shocking thing about this is that the people at the time, according to the commentators, would have said the day of the Lord, they would have thought of the day of the Lord as a good thing. The day of the Lord is a a thing to look forward to, uh, a a great day to anticipate, because it's going to be the day when God finally brings vengeance against all our enemies and restores us to our rightful place. Certainly that's the way the uh, Jews in Palestine at the time of Jesus would have thought about it. They thought this is going to be great. The day of the Lord is going to come and wipe out these Romans and get them out of here and, and restore our kingdom. It's going to be great. 
And then uh, Joel comes around and says, yeah, the day of the Lord might not be uh, what you think it is. Uh, it's not God's army uh, uh, marching on others. It's against us. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 11, to kind of put a capstone on this, he says, the day of the Lord is dreadful. Who can endure it? So what he says is, it's not something to be looked forward to, to look, be looked forward to. It's going to be dreadful. It's going to be judgment against us. And the proper response to that comes in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, verse 12 and 13, where Joel says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts. Rend your hearts, not your garments. It's a famous phrase. Rend your hearts, not your garments. And what he says is, I don't want you going through the motions. I don't want you saying, oh, okay, I, I don't want this evil, awful thing to happen to me. I know just what to do. I'll, I, whatever it is, tell me what it is, I'll do it. And I'll, I'll go through the motions. God says, I don't want you going through the motions to please me, to appease my wrath. I want your hearts. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Now, why would you do that? And here's where Joel quotes uh, Exodus, Exodus 34. He says, for God is gracious and compassionate. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's why you should repent. And, uh, and then in chapter 2, the, the second half of chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2, is this poem that talks about God's response to repentance. And I'll read a couple of select verses to you. This is chapter 2, verse 18, uh, 18, 19, and 20. It says, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. Verse 20, But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. So that's an about face. That's a turnabout. First of all, he's saying, I'm going to, have a, I'm going to be filled with pity on you filled with pity for you, and I'm going to restore you and uh, give you prosperity. Grain, new wine, and oil represent all kinds of real prosperity, physical prosperity. But then he says, uh, I'm, I'm going to remove the northern army far from you. So that, that, what it tells you is God says, the, the, you're, the invading armies that are going to come and take over you are other nations. I'm going to use them to accomplish my purposes uh, that's why they're referred to as God's army. But then I'm going to judge them for doing just that, for hurting you, my people. I'm going to, I'm going to kick them out. And then, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a lengthy poem. I'm going to read this to you. It's chapter 2, verse 28. And it's a continuation of the theme of God's response to repentance. Uh, Joel 2, verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if those words sound familiar to you, they should, because those words, that, that exact passage... Joel 2, verse 28, through the first half of verse 32, that is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts. 
it happens right after they're sp- they all start speaking in tongues, and the people around say, "Oh, these these men must be drunk. This is this is ridiculous." And and Peter gets up and says, "We're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning." This whole episode of speaking in tongues right before you has happened so that the words written in the prophet of Joel might be fulfilled. And then Peter quotes this exact passage from Joel chapter 2, where he says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And he says, This all has happened in front of you uh, because of what just happened to these events, because of the events in Jerusalem where, where Jesus was crucified. And they were cut to the quick. And uh, this last verse, when he read verse 32a, must have really spoken to them. He says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they were. And about 3,000 people uh, uh, came to know the Lord, came to saving faith on that day, and the Christian church was established right there, uh, got its start on the day of Pentecost. So these, this passage from the book of Joel may have been written as a prophecy purely to set up the day of Pentecost to get the church established. But it also makes reference to some things that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. So in chapter in verse 31, it says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And that didn't happen on the day of Pentecost. Even though Peter quoted that verse. That did not happen on the day of Pentecost. So was Joel merely prophesying about the day of Pentecost? Well, he's probably prophesying about the day of Pentecost, but also future events yet to come. Uh, now, to summarize, God's response to repentance in chapter 2, God will A, defeat the locusts, B, restore the land, and then C, bring his divine presence to the people. And then if you turn to chapter 3 of the book of Joel, and like I said, it's only three chapters, chapter 3 is a series of poems that address these three, three things, that God is going to defeat the locusts by confronting the evil of the very nations he used to punish his people, uh, secondly, he's going to restore the land. He's going to bring a hope for renewal of all creation. So this is, for example, in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. So a, a renewal of all creation. And then thirdly, he's going to bring his divine presence to the people. And this is in chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, for example, he has a verse that says, Joel has a verse that says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. Now, that's a quick summary of the book of Joel. What does it mean? Joel raises a whole host of really interesting questions for a minor prophet book that is only three chapters long. So, for example, are tragedies always God's judgment? A wave of locusts comes through the land, and Joel steps back and says, I want to tell you, this wave of locusts is not just an ecological disaster. It is God's judgment. So today, when we see a tidal wave hit a coastal area, or a hurricane rip through an area, uh, a terrorist attack on a city, do we say, well, that's must, this was awful. It must have been God's judgment. It, it clearly, God is judging sin. Those people must have been really awful sinners. Is that the way it works? Tragedy is God's judgment? Here's another question raised by the book of Joel. Are we responsible for collective sin or just individual sin? I'm a, you know, a, a Westerner. I'm a, 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 I like to think of myself as a modern thinker, modern Westerner. And as such, I think of the world very much in individualistic terms. I like to think that I'm responsible for my own sin, but not for the sins of others. But God comes by and says, there are these nations that did these awful things, 
to Israel, and I'm going to judge them. And you can imagine there would be people in those nations that said, wait, well, hold the phone, wait a second. I, I, would, I didn't invade Israel. I had nothing to do with that. I wasn't in the military. I was back at home, you know, making dinner or, or tending my garden. I had nothing to do with that. Why am I being judged? So what does God mean by that? Does God say, well, there are times when you know, your uh, collective sin, that you are, you are going to be responsible or held somehow responsible for collective sin? Or can you just say, no, I'm only, I'm only on the hook for my individual sin, but not the sin of the group that I belong to? There's another, so that's another question. Here's another one. Are Israel-specific prophecies applicable to us? I listened to a commentator who uh, expounded on the book of Joel, um, just as I was getting ready to prepare this talk. And he went through and said, basically, why do you think you Gentiles, why do you think any of this is about you Gentiles? Why do you think any of this is about you Gentile Christians. This is all about Israel. This is about Israel's judgment, judgment as Israel. Look, look, there's there are geographic references in here to Jerusalem and other places. This has nothing to do with you. This is, this is about uh, armies that invaded a, a, a Jerusalem or will invade in the future, and then God's, how God's going to fight those battles in, physically in uh, the land of uh, Israel, and then how God's going to restore Israel. It has nothing to do with Christians at all. And Here's a fourth question. Which future battle is prophesied here? Is it the Assyrian conquest, the Babylonian conquest, the Roman conquest? Maybe some kind of future Armageddon? So all of these questions are interesting, but I think they're all distractions. That's why I refer to them as rabbit holes. Rabbit holes that we could go down and just speculate on and think about. I mean, just, but I think they take us away from the key, key points, key takeaways of the Book of Joel. So let me just, but I'll dismiss them quickly because having raised them, I'll just kind of give some quick answers to them. Are tragedies always God's judgment? Uh, Clearly, the book of Job and a number of New Testament passages were written to to dispel that notion exactly, to precisely dispel that notion. Tragedies are not always God's judgment. Could a tragedy be God's judgment? Yes, it could be. But unless you're a prophet, you'll never know. Joel was a prophet. So when Joel saw the locust, God was speaking through him, and God said, Joel, that's my judgment. Go tell the people. Joel, as a prophet, could know that. But you and I can't look at someone else's flat tire and say, aha, it's God's judgment for your sin. That's why your tire went flat. We don't know. Unless you're a prophet, you don't know. Are we responsible for collective sin or just individual sin? Both. Both. We need to be forgiven of both. Are Israel-specific prophecies applicable to us? Maybe not, but there's still plenty for us to learn from the book of Joel. And which future battle is prophesied here? Assyrian, Babylonian, Roman, Armageddon? Probably all of them. Probably all of them. So, if those questions are the things that we should be dwelling on, what's the point? What are the key takeaways of the book of Joel? What can we really learn? First of all, a couple things. Uh, and I, a couple of these things I got, uh, thankfully, from the uh, folks at the Bible Project, but I'm gonna, I want to expound on these in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, first of all, human sin and failure wreak devastation in our world. Uh, judgment, uh, God, what we sometimes refer to as God's judgment, is the natural consequence of living outside his will. And I'll just give you an example or two about this. If you, uh, people say, why is God judging me? Why can't I just live in perfect freedom? I want to do what I want to do. And why do I have to have a God who judges me for doing that? And, and the simple example that helps me is if I think about, if I, you know, if, I'm, if I buy a car and I say, I know the designer of the car said that gasoline should go in this hole over here, and oil should go in that one over there, but no one tells me what to do. I'm a free man, I make my own decisions, and I'm going to put oil over there and gasoline over there. And the car breaks down, and I rail my fist against the designer, and I say, why is the designer of this car judging me? 
And if I ever met the designer, the designer will say, you idiot, I'm not judging you. I, I designed this thing to work in a certain way and you didn't want to follow the directions. You brought judgment on yourself, in other words. Okay, now that's an overly simple example, I, I know. Let me give you another one um, that, that might resonate with you. Uh, I go sailing sometimes uh, with my brother. My, uh, I, we learned to sail together years ago. He stayed with it. I never stayed with it, but he became a really great sailor. So I go sailing on his boat sometimes. And when we go sailing on the boat, if we, if we get the boat and the sails and the lines, they don't, they don't say ropes on a boat, they say lines. If we get all of that chewed up with the, the waves, the wind, the tides, if we are in line with all those things, it's beautiful. It's blissful. It's one of the most wonderful experiences. It's almost like you can, you can be in perfect quiet moving across the surface of the water because everything you're doing is in harmony with the natural elements around you. Now, if you say, but I want to go this way against the wind, you can do that. We can tack against the wind, but we still have to operate in line with all the, the wind and the waves and obey the, the rules of physics and the principles uh, of, of sailing, and we can have a smooth ride. But if you say, I, I don't want to listen to any of that. I want to do what I want to do. No one tells me what to do. Well, you can, you can try to sail that way, but you're going to have a really, really, really rough ride, and you're probably going to sink. Right? It, just, it doesn't work that way. And if you say, the why is the why? The wind and the waves, why are they judging me? Well, it's because you made choices. You brought judgment on yourself. And so you could say, yeah, but in, in, that's a nice little analogy, good, good examples. The second one, a little more complex than the first. I get it. I get it. But, uh, but why do all these, all these things happen in the world? Like those don't seem to have anything to do with the judgment for my sin directly. That's absolutely true. Um, but, but, the, but ultimately, we live in a fallen world. It's our sin that has brought, uh, uh, the, our sin that has corrupted this world. Uh, and and it's, the, it's the fall. It's our own sin that has made this a, a corrupt and fallen world and brings, brings that kind of judgment on ourselves. So human sin and failure wreak devastation in our world. Uh, that's point number one. Secondly, the, the second takeaway, God is going to use human sin to accomplish his purposes. So here in the book of Joel, judgment comes through all these other nations. And I'll bet if you had asked the Assyrians that later attacked Israel, uh, if, if you had asked them if they thought they were making a free will decision on their own to attack Israel, they would have said, yes, I am. I'm doing this. And yet, that, and, and was that decision sinful? Yes, it was. But was it part of God's plan? Was God using them? God refers to them as his army. God is actually absolutely using their free will, sinful decisions and incorporating those to accomplish his purpose in this world. It's just like in Genesis when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And then at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, because Joseph, if that hadn't happened, Joseph would not have got into a position of power where he could actually save a huge part of the world at that time from hunger. And when he's talking to his brothers, he has this great verse towards the end of Genesis where he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God took your evil, sinful, free will decisions and incorporated those into his plan. And then the other example, maybe the primary example is Judas, because Judas makes a sinful, free will decision to betray Christ. And yet God still weaves that into his plan and uses that to accomplish his purpose. 
So second takeaway, God is going to use human sin to accomplish his purposes. Third takeaway, God longs to show mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin. God longs to show mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin. The key message of the book is repentance. Uh, and it's it's not trying to figure out, you know, so which future battle it is, what are the clues. If you approach the book that way, you're approaching the book like it's all about breadcrumbs, like God has sprinkled breadcrumbs. And if you are, you know, put your Sherlock Holmes hat on, you can look at the clues and figure it out. And that what God is trying to do is give you a book that's kind of shadowy, but you, if you work hard, you can figure it out. And that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is repentance. The point of the book is for us to understand our sin and God's reaction to our repentance, that God shows mercy to those who acknowledge and confess sin. And all of that, fourth takeaway, all of that should lead to hope, not only that God will one day defeat evil in our world, but also incite all of us and someday make all things new. Now, those are the takeaways, but here's the problem. How is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? And and what I really want you to take away from this lesson, or from this book of Joel, if you read it, uh, is uh, all the things I just said already, those great, great takeaways. But the big takeaway, if you remember nothing else, remember this, the locusts and the army and the, the devastation they caused illustrate the vastness of God's wrath for sin. In other words, when God says, look, your sin is such that the proper and proportional response to it is utter and complete devastation of the land, either through a swarm of locusts or, in a much worse and more horrible way, an army that swarms over the land and devastates everything. See, we approach sin so casually. We sin, we sin again, we say, oh, there I go again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You hold like, And you could imagine holding out your wrists and saying, go ahead, God, go ahead, go ahead. Slap me on the wrists. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Won't happen again. I'll try. I'll try better next time. And God says, you don't get it, do you? You don't understand. And I think that is why the book of Joel is here. You don't understand. I want to give you a, a picture. I want to give you a visual picture of the proper and proportional response in me to your sin. And the response I have to your sin is, um, is an unbelievable wrath. And the image I want you to think of is an entire, an entire nation wiped out, a complete and utter devastation. That's a proper response to your sin. That should tell you how big your sin problem really is. We constantly and consistently underestimate our sin problem, and that's the book of Joel is here to say, you don't get it. This is how bad your sins really are. This is God's not, God's not overreacting to our sins. God's giving the proper reaction to our sins. So then what hope is there for us? How do we find hope in that? Well, the answer to this is that uh, there was someone who took the full force of that wrath for us. Jesus won the battle so that God's justice would be fulfilled and we could be restored. And you have to think about that, that the vastness of God's wrath, illustrated by locust devastation or military devastation on a country, the vastness of his wrath, probably, and not just probably, but beyond what we can comprehend, <laughs> the destruction of the devastation didn't just come down on one country, came down on one person, came down on him, came down on Jesus, so that we could be saved. And that is the gospel according to Joel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast 
at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.